Welcome to The Ethics of Caring, an ongoing project that explores what it means to be ethical in the arts. Hello, and thanks for joining us for another episode of The Ethics of Caring. I hope everyone had a restorative start to this new year. Clearly, we took off last week since it seemed the kindest decision we could make for ourselves, but we are excited to be back to share another episode with you today. This week, we're talking about sustainability, particularly in the context of academia. Before we get into the discussion, we have one point of feedback that I'd like to address, which is about our less than excellent audio quality. We hear you and we agree. We are managing these conversations whenever and wherever we can make time. And sometimes that happens during a break room at work or in a rainstorm. So we are accepting the audio quality that we have as amateur podcasters. And thank you for also accepting our audio quality. Hopefully it's not that annoying. Okay, so a little bit of context about this episode. When the creative team decided on the set of prompts to share with folks we were surveying and talking to this season, we decided to include one question surrounding sustainability. The prompt reads, Sustainability is a hot word right now, but there's little consensus on what it means to be working sustainably since it can manifest in many different ways. What does being sustainable mean for you as a human? And does the answer change in the context of your professional self? The responses we heard range from uncertainty about what it means to be sustainable in extractive systems to commenting on the need to be intersectional when designing solutions and allocating resources. We were surprised to hear several people talk about the weight they feel about the unsustainability of staying in academia. We heard this from students, researchers, and educators. And although we weren't intending to center academia in the conversation about sustainability, we think that it is interesting since so many people working in the arts and preservation sectors have or are engaged within academic circles. To begin, we're going to hear a short clip from Alma Diamond, who you heard in last week's episode, A Beginner's Mind. As a reminder, Alma is a constitutional legal scholar and PhD student currently based in New York City. Alma shares an interesting perspective on working sustainably and comments on some challenges she's experienced that lead to a less than sustainable lifestyle as an academic. So I thought the word sustainability makes me just immediately think about resources. Um, and that makes me, and that's exactly the, the I think that's echoing back what we said earlier, but pushing against this idea of it being about budgeting and allocating and being efficient and um, uh, so it is about resources in the sense of my my mental health <laughs> and my energy and especially my time but a much of what I think about sustainability might be to try to approach these things not as resources <laughs> not as finite resources that have to be optimized but I thought the thing about sustainability if I think about my own life, my own work, and I try to think about how I'm going to do this always, trying to operationalize this work and optimize it um, is already sort of putting me at that place where I'm becoming um, drained and 
it's an it's an it's a way of expending effort that seems to me almost counterproductive and so what i've been trying to do is to be much more open to approaching everything as a process so if i find myself confronted with a specific situation that requires immediate advocacy in a certain way then that's of course what i do but i um or even with time i i'm trying not to divide my day into eight blocks of two hours doing things but to wake up and look at the weather <laughs> and decide this is the kind of day it is and this is what I'm going to do. And it's not possible to do independent of context and what other demands are on you. But I've been trying to just to feel more part of a process than a manager of a process in a way. I'm not I'm not sure that is an answer. I've been trying to do that now and it's been mostly about me just feeling less daunted by the prospect of trying to be sustainable. Then I don't know if it actually helps in, in, in sustainability practice long term. Because the other the other story is always knowing your limits and knowing what you're going to do, but you're always just like faced with exigencies. Like I can know all my limits, but if something is really demanded me of a moment, then my limits are almost almost irrelevant there. So it's more about the spaces I place myself in, and the the um, demands I expose myself to, than it is me rationing those demands because it never works like that. Mm, yeah, I think I, I have, yeah, a few thoughts. One, I love um, the shift that you're making for yourself to, yeah. to be responsive to the weather, to like let that go. I like that. Your day. <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. I wonder what the, um, how, again, I wonder how to, how we extrapolate that as an idea outwardly, um, because it mm. seems to function well, maybe on an individual level, right? And maybe because of the circumstance, like your particular situation, you can be responsive in that way. But I wonder, mm. yeah, I just wonder how we, what that means, what it means to, to Professionally, uh, I don't know if you want to ask professionally, because professionally, I've just been absolutely, um, absolutely overwhelmed by how unsustainable academia is absolutely unsustainable in terms of how it um well how it demands and exploits people at the bottom of the labor pyramid how it extracts from them how it's basically a pyramid scheme um, because everybody's there trading in everything for the chance to be at the top of the pyramid at some day um how how professionalized education is unsustainable so Thinking about sustainability in the, my specific profession is something I do not know how to do because I do not see how to make it more sustainable. I, I do not know how to do that. I don't even know what changes to happen. So people have been unionizing and they've been talking a lot about changing, well, grading practices and student engagement practices. And they've been trying to talk about how you're going to um, deal with outsourcing. Outsourcing is a big problem in universities. Um, and But in between all those things, I... I see the whole system as incredibly unsustainable and I, I don't actually know what my response, I, I honestly do not know what to do about it. Um, I feel almost like disenfranchised from the problem. So, so large, it seems so daunting and large. I really appreciate Alma's perspective on being responsive to ourselves and the environment. And when we have the ability to make decisions in the moment that feel good and right rather than forcing ourselves to do something because we previously committed ourselves to doing it. Obviously, very few have the luxury to make these decisions in our professional lives, but perhaps some of us have the agency to make these decisions in our personal lives. 
Alma's reflections on some of the unsustainable aspects of being in academia reflect other conversations we had this season. Some people in the preservation sector mentioned the unhealthy pipeline that training programs have codified, that the highly competitive nature of the application processes and granting processes embed this mentality into the broader field. Others mentioned the unhealthy and toxic culture that academics adopt to succeed. With this in mind, we are going to hear some really practical advice and thoughts from a dear friend, an artist, an educator, a researcher who just relocated from Berkeley, California to St. Petersburg, Florida, Tina Paracci. I highly recommend that you check out Tina's projects, which we've linked to in the episode notes, since they are hard to communicate the complexity and beauty verbally. Tina's background traverses art making, biology, engineering, and philosophy, and she manages to weave all of these interests into the work that she makes, which often include 3D printed ceramics made from printers that she designs and builds herself. Really, she's a badass. So aside from being a wonderful human, Tina manages something in her art making practice that I rarely see, even though I work in the contemporary art sphere. She embodies sustainable values in every aspect of her projects, cultivating ecosystems and supporting communities in many forms, sometimes human, sometimes ecological. She's thoughtful in every stage of her decision-making, and because of this, she has yeah, interesting ideas and thoughts on what it means to really embody sustainable values. So to begin, I ask her about how she manages to integrate sustainability values in her decision-making and when this shift happened in her art-making career. I think especially coming to Berkeley to work with researchers that are kind of on the forefront of implementing these kinds of projects, I was seeing that they're not always taking the most sustainable approach. Um, so really trying to further that by working with scientists that knew, know more about that field because I'm not, um, none of my degrees are in science or biology, though I did start in biology and switch over to art. And so trying to make sure that whatever kinds of materials I'm using are natural materials and are sustainable and can be either locally sourced or majority locally sourced with sort of other ingredients coming from different places because often they're clay-based. For instance, when we were doing the stove projects in Mozambique, a lot of the dirts and clays that they were using, we would have to find other materials to add to that to make them appropriate for the use. So for instance, different kinds of additives to facilitate the thermal properties of a cook stove wasn't possible with the kind of clays that they had locally. So just like at least adding something that's nearby, but not necessarily as local as those materials or like with the underwater museum project, they require a certain amount of materials from their lists that they have. And so even within their lists, you can use like regular cement, um, but trying to forward that more and use like cementitious limestone. So that way you're optimizing the growth that you can get on the artificial reef, but then also you're not negatively affecting the pH of the water or other things that can come along with non-cementitious limestones. So just trying to keep materials local to its cause, which is something that I feel like I've only in the past few years 
really sort of anchored down in my work. My perspective of what is art at first was very narrowed. And I think as I went along trying to find what is intrinsically interesting to me and what are those things that I care about. And so when reassessing what I wanted to make, I felt more motivated to create things for either the purpose of community or sustainability. So even if it did not end up in a gallery setting, something that I felt like was making more of an impact because that cycle of create the work, install the work, deinstall the work, started to create this pattern that I was less interested in um, and became more interested in public art or sustainable art or even more educational-based art activities with other communities and seeing what kind of sort of performance-based aspects might emerge within like community collaborations, whether that's with students or with makers in other countries. I think one thing I was always interested in was like creating the tools that create the artwork. And so like creating the printer that I did in undergrad was kind of like the first example of me doing that. But then realizing that that can extend beyond like a physical tool and how that can might translate from hardware to software. So Emerging Objects, which is one of the research groups I was working with at Berkeley, was developing Potterware, which is a clay 3D printing software. And so the goal of that was to kind of try to make clay printing more accessible to those who didn't have coding or scripting experience. And so though it was just sort of designed for an educational setting for maybe like middle school and high school in the United States, it kind of ended up growing into something that we were able to share like with our previous business partners in Mozambique. So that way they could create products with their local potters to personalize them in a way that they wouldn't be able to do so without the tool. And so trying to create software that allows for accessibility in some of the ways that hardware wouldn't. So providing grants in which people can have the hardware for it, but then have a software that increases accessibility in a way that allows someone to modify a model. So say if someone's creating a stove in Mozambique, it's going to be different from how they might create a stove in Sudan. And so the accessibility of that printing software could lead them to refine it in a way that meets the needs of their community. I'm so impressed. Are you also wearing the hat of being a grant writer? Is that something that comes with like being in a very collaborative space and like, um, like Berkeley? Yes. And so continuing on those grants, but also I feel like within that great writing, writing space, it also gives the ability to make projects autonomous and sustainable in their own right. So it's, it's easier to be able to pass on a project. So it's like, okay, here's your training packet. And then here's the training on the device. And then they're able to sort of take that on and then they can train other people within their area. And so, especially when we were doing these kinds of projects during COVID and we weren't able to travel to do those things, we kind of created a model in which we were able to have remote support um, but then that grow into a more economically sustainable model where they can 
take ownership of that and create it into their own communal business and then train other communities nearby in which I no longer have to be a part of that. And I think my younger self would have been really attached to that. And I think Mm -hmm. now that I'm able to sort of hand off projects to other people and other communities, it's a way for more, I guess, advanced growth or like continuing growth that I don't have to necessarily be a part of that because it kind of just was initiated and now it can grow on its own in its own sustainable way with resources that they're able to gather from their community, whether it's just mud or um, potters of the area that already have their traditional practices of firing and clay making. I don't know if we would have taken that approach if it wasn't COVID. So I feel like there are some kind of remote exercises that helped build more sustainable models for future projects because we weren't able to be there. Okay, I want to pause here briefly and make a quick point about forming community. It seems obvious that community begins by forming relationships, and these tend to happen on intimate levels between two people or smaller groups. If one person functions as a connection between many disparate people, the community mimics what we can call a centralized network. This model is inherently hierarchical and unsustainable in the sense that it's reliant on one person to upkeep multiple connections. If we want to form community sustainably, we can attempt to form an alternate structure like decentralized or distributed network. These may also be inherently hierarchical, but by having multiple points of connection, we have a stronger and more resilient community. Johanna Swanson, a union organizer that we'll hear from later on this season, made this point to me in in the context of forming a union. Johanna makes the case for creating systems that sustain beyond individuals if we want to create long-term change. Tina makes the same point here about her work in Mozambique. Okay, let's get back to the conversation and hear Tina's perspective about how she is embedding this idea into her curriculum as an educator. And it's something that I'm trying to also implement like in a classroom setting because I think a lot of education downfalls is within more theory than practice. And so trying to implement practice in the classroom, whether that's having student groups partner with local communities, whether that's like a health center or a wellness center to try to implement programs in which they implement that program, but then that program can live on after they're done with the class. So it's something that they can utilize in the classroom as a learning experience, but then also be something that can be implemented in the real world and be sustained after they're done with their assignments. So something that they, that partnership, um, whichever institution they're partnering with can continue after they're gone as well. A lot of like the class projects I'm doing are all group projects to try to help that notion of collaboration because I think especially being in like Berkeley's academic sphere, it was extremely competitive to where You know, if somebody helps you with a project, they want you to sign something just to make sure that they'll be acknowledged or something where you have to sign something to say you're not going to be acknowledged. And that was not some like it wasn't a practice I was familiar with until seeing it. And it was something that I wasn't attracted to, though there's like excitement behind like, oh, you're going to be published or you'll be noted as an editor. And I feel like a lot of that starts to detract from the reasons why we do things and like another topic 
I have in one of my philosophy classes with the students is incentives and how like incentives can also sometimes de-incentivize someone because then they're kind of starting to fall into a pattern of doing things for the incentive rather than being intrinsically interested or passionate about that topic. And so like we look into studies how like for instance when children are supposed to be reading they do incentives to like try to get them to read more books and then they get like pizza cards or some kind of toys or points in association for like encouraging them to read but then it kind of takes away from their enjoyment of reading because then they're only doing it to reach those incentives and I feel like that same notion kind of applies to academics where I see professors and researchers either slanting their work or kind of trying to fit it into a box that doesn't necessarily fit. And now it's just become something other than what they had originally intended it to be or, or detracts from the passion or sort of underlying reasons that they started to do those things. Mm, interesting because it's like, seems like it's done with good intentions. But then but... even hearing some of the, I mean, legal debates and then just like arguments that can arise from publication or accreditation within certain research projects and how that's, at least in my experience, shown a lot of toxicity and how that can become something negative that was supposed to initially be like a positive sort of accolade that's now being watered down in a sense because of this categorical box that everything tries to fit into how do you center interest and passion and care creating these systems that necessitate some action or behavior like how do we embed that in the way that we educate or disseminate information i mean i think one way of doing it is to focus more on collaboration than i don't want to say self-righteousness but like the individual in the project because i think often whether it's in design or engineering or in art, there are so many more people that are involved in a project that don't get recognized. And so shifting from like independent projects and more and bringing it into more collaborative projects in which you can carry your own values into that project, but then also have it be a collaboration outside of your interests, because you'll often find that if you're in an intersection working with other artists or designers, then they'll often have those same underlying passions, whether it's sustainability or social justice and trying to find ways to make those efforts more collaborative and include more people within your like academic or research pursuit. At least the way that I approach it. I mean, professionally, like creating like a matrix or like a behavioral pattern that kind of checks me. I have to ask myself who I'm accountable to and on what basis I make decisions. So that way I can be more intentional and deliberate that my decisions are being reflective of my values and ethics. For sure. Or like if you start entering a certain research field, and then you see that there's more research opportunities if your research topic is tweaked or shifted in a certain direction. It's like whether or not you're willing to make that sacrifice because you may have access to more resources if now you include X, Y, and Z in your project that you weren't originally going to include. But 
you might be able to further your project with the resources that are granted. And so I find often grad students and PhD students are shifting their topics to kind of reflect what greatest benefit they can receive, whether it's within a grant program or doing research for a certain corporation, which may be somewhat in line with what they were hoping to do, but then it's sort of detracting from their original goals because they're, again, trying to find one of those incentives and that might further their project in one way, but then also detract from it in others. I totally hear what you're saying. I think we also rationalize them. You know, if it's good for me, then I can do better work in the long term, even if it's not, you know, maybe what I intended to with this project. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like it just happens more and more to where it's like trying to pick your sacrifices wisely, because at the end of it, you may end up in a topic that wasn't your original intention. One more pause to acknowledge the overlap between what Tina is saying and what we talked about last week towards existing in systems that encourage us to act competitively and orient ourselves toward individual success. Tina speaks about how this has seeped into academic culture and instead promotes the idea of working with the collective success mentality as one approach to affecting positive change in her community. We have one more clip to share, and it's Tina's response to me ending the interview, which I tend to do by asking if there's something they wanted to bring up that we didn't already discuss. Tina shares her thoughts on being systematic in allocating her time as a way to combat the feeling most academics have that they're not doing enough. At first, it might seem at odds from the advice we heard from Alma at the beginning of the episode, but I think both approaches can exist simultaneously, pending what you're trying to achieve. Well, one thing that we've actually chatted about just separately, because it was after the therapy session in which someone gave me the same advice, was trying to find balance. And something that I've actually been able to implement is trying to put yourself in check and be able to evaluate where you want to be spending your time and checking up as to whether you're you're doing that or not. And so the example that was given was like, okay, well, write down or mentally know where you want to divide your time. And so whether you're doing it as percentage and actually tracking it, but for instance, doing like 45% work and then 35, 30% of my time within relationships, 15% of my time within creating and 10% within wellness, then you can kind of create your own goals and track it to see whether or not you're hitting those goals. And I think part of why this is also helpful is because we always have an infinite to-do list and we always have more things to do. And so having that time for your relationships or for your wellness, I've found I can appreciate that more because there's less guilt associated with it because I know I've already met my goal of 45% of my time towards work. And so there might be less neglect on those categories because I don't feel like there's always something to be done because I feel that I've already put in my weekly amount of time for this. And though maybe I'm not making this deadline or that deadline, this is what I've set aside for myself to do. And so that's been one approach to finding balance that has helped um, and it's all individually based so like if you're a workaholic you can have a higher percentage of work time and then just making sure that you are still creating those safe spaces for yourself for those other things that you care about so that way when you meet your quota or whatever that may be 
you kind of have the freedom to have that guilt-free time with yourself or with your friends. So that way you don't feel like you're neglecting your to-do list or whatever kind of cue you have for your work environment, because you've already kind of met that quota. And so you can more genuinely enjoy those other times. I really appreciate that you do this for yourself. I'm, I'm, I'm not as systematic with this. I feel as though, you know, just reflecting on my emotional state, I tend to be a lot less um, stressed out when I feel like I've sufficiently allocated time, you know, to doing projects, right? I feel like I can enjoy um, other aspects of my life more because I'm, you know, more at peace with how I'm spending my time. Um, but yeah, I love that you're, yeah, really systematic. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you start with the system and if you feel like you're not meeting it, you can like adjust it. And then you also shed light on how realistic your goals are. Cause I think we all like at the beginning of the day, we're like, we're going to do this, 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 and this. And then by the end of the day, you're like, wow, I've only gotten two of those things done. And just kind of being able to estimate time more accurately. You can round, you know, you can do a third, third, third. Hey. (laughs) Totally. And I think that this is like also this technique is also um, a way to be like more informed about your, our own interests, because if we, um, you know, start to see that we're spending our time in different ways than how we, you know, projected or anticipated, you know, that the way in which we spend our time reflects our values. Um, So you know, we'll get more insight into what we care about. Yeah, absolutely. And also kind of have a reality check for yourself, because I think as an artist, I have this expectation of like, I should be making art all the time. And like that, I feel like was proved to be unrealistic when I started taking note of how I'm dividing my time and seeing like, as long as I do this much per week, like I feel fulfilled from that. So it's like trying to have a self-check of what you need to be able to feel good because I think often our own expectations for ourselves can be unobtainable and I'm sure it also like reiterates like reminds you like because you have balance you maybe feel more energized and you feel more um, motivated and um, excited about it because you have space right you have space for other things yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of major breakthroughs come when people are taking breaks. It's like one of the topics we go through in our engineering classes. It's like all these great inventions were like thought of on vacation. <laughs> it's like finally unclogs yourself to be more efficient, even though you're spending less time, you're more potent in your actions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Inficiency, that's a, that's a, um, whole nother topic about like the need for efficiency as a way to be creative and expansive like it's a necessary step but um it's not like the end goal right like efficiency as a process to get to um something else for sure okay a very practical question how do you track your time like because so many things exist in multiple categories you know no they do for sure but I'd say like I'm estimating and then I put it in whichever category I feel because you create your own categories. So I purposely do it in a way that it's like, I try to have mine like either people focused, like relationships or like me focused, which is more wellness. But of course you could say, well, having lunch with a friend can contribute to my wellness. But Mm -hmm. when I was devising that I made wellness smaller. So that way I think of it as more as like self wellness. 
So like whether that's like doodling mindlessly or like doing yoga, then I'll keep that in that category. So you kind of like set your own boundaries and like consider that when you're kind of breaking it down. You could also not use such specific numbers, but I feel like just like estimating your time and then seeing where you spend your time, kind of like when a doctor gives you like a diet diary or something to try to figure out what's wrong. It's like, if you just do it for like the first two weeks and see like how you are or are not meeting your goals, then I feel like you don't actually have to write anything down after that because you're already like consciously dividing your time in a more thoughtful, mindful way. Okay, that's the end of the conversation. Since it's the new year, might I suggest taking Tina's advice and thinking about how you spend your time and if it aligns with your values and your priorities. I'm going to attempt this over the next few weeks, so if you want to talk about it with me, let's chat about the process. Also, if you have space in your life to wake up and look out the window at the weather and decide that that is going to dictate how you navigate your day, um, I recommend you do this also. It sounds beautiful. Hi, my name is Adriana Benavides. I'm one of the social media coordinators for the podcast. You've reached the end of episode three. I hope you're feeling inspired by the content and will join us in two weeks where we'll share our next episode, which builds on this conversation and what it means to cultivate empathy and compassion when forming community. For those who are interested, please hold a 9 a.m. Pacific time, 12 p.m. Eastern time on the 15th of February, 2023, to join in an online discussion where we will connect around the ideas presented over the season. Finally, we'd like to extend a sincere message of gratitude to the granting agencies that have provided us the support to financially compensate everyone in this project. The Winneter University of Delaware Program in our conservation and the Society of Winneter Fellows. We could not have done this project without your support, so thank you for believing in us. We'd also like to recommend you check out our social media pages and whatisconservation.com, where this podcast is hosted. Until soon, and thanks for listening.